Today's SWAPA number is five. That's how many unions, including SWAPA, that have chosen to call a strike authorization vote during their negotiation cycle while we have been in the middle of ours. The other four are Delta, Alaska, American, and FedEx. Southwest isn't alone nor unique in their struggle to achieve a contract that attracts and retains the best pilots in the industry. So on today's show, we spoke with SPC Chair John Murphy and committee member Mike Terwilliger about the strike authorization vote that opens on May 1st, what the SPC has been doing behind the scenes, and why the vote is so important to our negotiations. Three, turn left, heading 140, runway 22 left, clear for takeoff. Clear for takeoff, 22 left, left turn, 140, stop I'm Amy Robinson. And I'm Mike Penabianco. And here's our interview with John and Mike. Let's start out by clarifying for our membership, because not everybody's heard you on the podcast before. Not everybody's had an interaction with a strike preparedness committee. What is the SPC here to do? Uh, what are you tasked with by the president? Well, first thing I like to do is start by naming the committee. We are the strike preparedness committee. So we educate, train, and lead the pilot group in the successful execution of a strike in order to support good faith bargaining. What else does the Strike Preparedness Committee do? Because obviously we are not, as of today, on a strike. So what is the day-to-day function? What is it you do on a regular basis? Currently, the Strike Preparedness Committee is continuing a campaign of education. We're conducting strike authorization vote rallies in all the domiciles. And we are building a path to ensure that if and when President Murray decides to announce a strike, that the union is ready to execute that strike in a safe, effective, professional, and timely manner. Just to add where Murph was with that, I believe that the SPC is the messaging arm for the negotiating committee. And through some of our activities that we have planned, we give the pilot group an opportunity to demonstrate their dissatisfaction with the pace of negotiations. So when you're talking about preparing and and educating the membership, you talked about the rallies, but I know there's much more to it than that. What else are you guys doing? Well, clearly one of the most um, visible programs we've had, new program we instituted last year is Leading Edge, and we've been present in all of the domiciles. We have also shown up before and after, say, the Nashville informational picket and the New York informational picket, and that puts your strike preparedness coordinators and very frequently domicile representatives front and center where the pilots are working so that they can answer the questions and provide direct feedback on where we are with negotiations and what the future looks like and what expectations we have of the pilot group. Have you guys hit almost every base or have you been in every base? We have. We've had a uh, leading edge program that started last April that has continued on throughout the system at all of the bases multiple times. We also have a plans to have leading edge in all of the bases as we go forward, especially at the opening. Talk to me a little bit more about the leading edge program. When you have your representatives from the SPC in the terminal, along with the reps, what are they doing? Well, the first thing they're doing is trying to capture a pilot who's running between flights or does not have a lot of time to head down to the lounge. And in that short, brief minute, they're there to, to be the face of the union. A lot of pilots, I mean, certainly all the pilots who don't live in Dallas, they come through Dallas for training and they're not swinging through SWAPA and outreach to a board member, although it's available through emails and phone calls and all the other methods of communication SWAPA offers, including the forum. 
there's just something about face-to-face -face communication. Uh, the pilot-to-pilot -pilot program has long been successful at ALPA, and we just repurposed it for our needs at this union. What are some of the things that you are hearing when you meet these pilots face-to-face? -face? What are some of the constant refrains that you get from those discussions? I think the real common uh, thing that we're hearing back from the pilot group right now is pretty strong dissatisfaction with the pace of negotiations, with the way that things are unfolding here. Pilots are seeing progress made at, at a variety of different airlines right now. Delta just signed a, an agreement. Alaska signed one last year, and here we are three years post-amendable, and we really have no significant gains to speak of at the moment. So we hear that quite a bit from the pilots. They're not happy with that. We also hear a lot from uh, difficulties on the line, problems that are, are common right now. And uh, we take that feedback and we bring it right back into SWAPA. There's two questions that we encounter every day. The first one is why? Why is it taking so long? Why doesn't the company look around and see what the issues are? We don't know. We all don't understand why the company continues to ignore the change in the market and the need to capture talent to support an operation that needs to grow. The other question that is most frequently asked is, why are we waiting so long to have the vote? And that's the an answer that I can provide. And that's that in order to deliver a successful strike authorization vote, I need every pilot to vote. And I need every pilot to vote yes and understand why they're voting yes. Those votes need to include pilots that are on disability, pilots that are on military leave, extended military leave, as well as pilots that are currently in lead training that have not even reported to their domicile yet. And although we all wanted to capture some of the emotional frustration and anger following the December meltdown, it's critical. And in order to build a program that increases participation to as close to 100% as is achievable, we needed the extra time in order to deliver those votes. So, Mike, when you're out, I know you've done a bunch of leading edge. And, you know, there's three different kinds of voters. Actually, there's probably four different kinds of voters. There's the, the yes voters. Why couldn't we vote last week, as we were just talking about a few minutes ago? There's the, uh, the I'm not sure yet. I don't know if I have enough information. And then there's the no. What are you hearing? I, I've heard from several people who are not happy about the strike authorization vote. Um what are you hearing on the no side? What are the objections? What are the common objections? And actually, I think this podcast really is for the people who are like, I'm not sure, or no. What are some of the reasons why people are saying I'm not sure or no? I think that most pilots that come to Southwest Airlines had an expectation in their mind that we were different in some way from some of the other airlines. I think they, they believed that these types of things were not going to occur at an airline that had a heart as a logo. And so I think there's a little bit of disbelief that's going through some of our pilots right now, a philosophical argument of it shouldn't have to be this way. And we, we do run into that quite a bit. So unfortunately, we are not in control 100% of the, of the pace of negotiations. That, that requires the company side as well. And so we are having to respond to the current dynamic that is a little bit different than in times past here. Let's go ahead and, and ask the real question that I think everybody, you know, we hear this a lot, and that is, well, we'll never be allowed to strike, so why should we do this? I mean, that's the elephant in the room. Let's address it. There are only two exits to the Railway Labor Act's path towards securing a contract between airline labor and airline management. And one is you bargain a good faith deal, and the other is that you get to a strike, which leads to a good faith deal. The two most common objections to they will never let us strike 
and they is almost exclusively a reference towards the government, is that uh, Southwest Airlines is too big. Southwest Airlines is too important to the economy. And then the other argument is uh, referring to the railway workers' inability to resort to self-help last fall. So I'll answer those separately. The first is that there is no better depiction of how not important Southwest Airlines is than to think back to last December when our operation was at a standstill, when the company lost operational control. We were flying less than a third of our flights for nearly a week. And to the best of my knowledge, the U.S. economy continued to roar along. Now, certainly millions of passengers were inconvenienced and it was a huge press event, but we're not flying international travelers on business. We're taking Americans to the beach and we're doing a lot of short haul flights and we are some one fifth of the domestic air market. So we are still the largest domestic carrier and that, that is incredibly important, but we are not the exclusive carrier. And that leads right into answering the second question, which is the railway workers. During their contract negotiations, the several different labor organizations to include conductors and line workers, they're all negotiating their contract at the same time for the different railroad companies. And they had developed a consortium of labor groups such that if one group did not sign a contract and went on strike, every other rail group would honor that same strike. For that situation to be matched here, it would imply that all of the airlines and all of the airlines employees, pilots, flight attendants, dispatchers, ramp, cargo, maintenance at Delta, American, United, Southwest were all negotiating at the same time. And if they, any one group did not get a contract, they would all go on strike at the same time. And it's just Southwest Airlines. To add a little bit to what Murph was saying about the railroaders, people seem to not remember that eight out of the 12 unions had agreed to the deals. So it was four remaining that held out. And through the course of that, pressure started coming into Congress, not just from the railroad side of things, but also from those unions who were also in a position that they were going to have to go out on strike, even though they had ratified deals on their side. So the whole consortium that that Murph is speaking about started to fragment after the first deals went through for those eight unions. Right. That infighting really did have an impact on what ended up being a a not so favorable solution for them. So unity is definitely not only of utmost importance for us, but being careful who we tie our boat to as well. I'd like to add a little bit to the, the question earlier from from Amy is, and the question is, will they ever allow us to strike or yes or no? Making a prediction without any kind of evidence one way or the other. That would be the same for Murr for myself saying they will absolutely allow us to strike. We don't know what the outcome is going to be as we progress down the Railway Labor Act. But we do know, as Murph said earlier, that there's only two paths off of it. It's either a negotiated agreement or we do reach an impasse. And we have to prepare for every eventuality, just as though we were flying an airplane, we always have an alternate and we always are prepared. So, Hey, Murph um, and Mike, yeah, both of you. Talk about what was the economic impact of the railroaders getting that far, even though they were never allowed to strike. What was the economic impact to the railroad companies and to business, American business, given that ramp up to their possible release to self-help? They went entered mediation in the spring of 2022 after good faith bargaining had failed. And then an impasse was declared in the fall, which started a 30-day cooling off period. Now, that's when the press attention really started because, oh, the trains could stop. But to be honest, a presidential emergency board was called, which allowed for another 30 days of bargaining, which also failed. And then the last 30-day cooling off period began. And during that second cooling off period, 
attention went from, oh, I think the railroaders are upset. Maybe they're going on strike to businesses and shippers and supply chain managers looked very seriously at how disruptive a railway stoppage would be. When the impasse was called for the railroaders, uncertainty was introduced into the process. This uncertainty was also felt by the industries that utilize that for transport, supply demand chains, other businesses that relied on the railways for their business. That uncertainty was not tolerable on their side. And so because of that, a lot of shipments were halted. You had hazmat that was not allowed to be stuck on, on railway cars somewhere in the system. And much like individuals, there's only a certain amount of uncertainty that can be felt before people start looking for alternative means. One thing that I think I've heard a couple of times is that, so the strike authorization vote does not mean that if you vote yes today that we're going on strike tomorrow, correct? That's correct. Are there any steps between that and actually striking? Last September, our board uh, elected to send us into mediation. So we've been in mediation since then, about six months. And we will continue to be in mediation. And as we had said earlier, there's only two pathways to exit that. One being a ratifiable agreement or two being an impasse. The strike authorization vote is two things. It is, first off, a display of unity and resolve of the, the membership showing that the negotiating committee is representing our interests and what we desire in a contract. And second, it gives authorization to Casey Murray to declare a strike if negotiations do fail and we end up in an impasse. The best reply that I've ever heard is, if you do not want to go on strike, vote yes on the strike authorization vote. Why is that? I almost have to refer back to the earlier question, they'll never let us strike. To know how late in the RLA process a strike happens is, is to really be talking about the end of the game, the overtime season, because of an impasse being declared, a, a presidential emergency board should it happen, another cooling off period. Nobody wants to win the game in overtime. You want to win it when the game is called. Now, we, we weren't able to successfully negotiate a contract during good faith bargaining. We're now in mediation. But the best way to close bargaining in mediation is to show the level of commitment that this pilot group has. And the level of commitment is displayed through a successful strike authorization vote by a great majority, a unanimous majority, a near unanimous measure of the pilot group saying that they are willing to strike in order to secure a market leading contract want to drag you guys back to that no voter or the maybe voter. Let's just say that the world is perfect. It's shined, you know, all the, all the blessings have shined down on me. I've got mine. My family's healthy. Everything's good. I came here to work for Herb and I got to experience working for Herb. I'm not excited about this because I've actually heard people of my seniority, maybe even more senior talking like that. What do you say to that pilot? If you're the leading edge guy out in the terminal and you get five minutes walking from one end of the terminal to the other with that guy, what do you say to him or her? Well, I think that it's okay to be grateful for what you have, what this career has provided, what Herb had created for this airline. And in times were good, and times may still be good for you and your situation. But this contract's not just about you and what benefits you personally. I think that for someone like that that's leaning towards a no, it's important to look at your fellow pilots. We have pilots that are out that have lost medical, that have lost life insurance. We have pilots that don't have the ability to take care of themselves without this job, with what this provides. And we are trying to improve upon that for those pilots as well. So when it comes to a no voter or someone who's leaning that way, I, I think that 
what I would ask of you is to look out for the other guy and maybe even look out for the guys that are coming behind us because not only do we have a responsibility towards ourselves, but in this profession, we have a responsibility for the generation coming behind us. And Mike, you and I have dealt with a lot of the new hires as they come through. Some of these new hire pilots are going to have 42 years here at Southwest Airlines. And we have a responsibility to them and to this profession to make it better for them. So that the reasons that they came here is they're going to have the reasons to stay as well. I think the simplest answer to what Mike was saying is, is a legacy. And if, if you're here walking around at Southwest Airlines, I can't speak to it directly, but I would imagine that our last four-digit pilots will retire under this contract. But to counter that against a pilot we're hiring with 170, 175,000 numbers, those senior pilots who are still walking around, who are still wearing the uniform, who have enjoyed a remarkably successful career, have also been lucky. They have most likely dodged some of the medical challenges, some of the uh, ability to maintain their, their class one. And there are pilots on our list that have not been so fortunate. We have over 500 pilots on disability right now. And one of the shortcomings of our contract, I mean, an outrageous shortcoming in our contract, is the fact that as you expend and drive your sick bank to zero to supplement the disability, which is also paid for by the union, of all the carriers, we are the only union that pays for their own pilot's disability. You expend your sick bank and the clock starts to tick and shortly thereafter, you lose your travel benefits and shortly thereafter, you lose your medical benefits and shortly thereafter, you lose your life insurance benefits. Again, you're on disability. Your income stream has been changed. You have tremendous uncertainty for the future and your employer is no longer helping you with the finance and the travel to get you back to flying. What does that no vote do? Like, let's just say I'm I'm a pilot and I'm just absolutely, I'm just going to say no. What does that do to our effort? I think it goes back to what we said earlier in regard to the vote. And this vote's going to pass. There's no question about that. We have the numbers for this vote to pass. But the difference between it passing at 99% versus 52% is, is very big. The company's going to view the results of this vote as a measure of the unity of this pilot group. It's going to answer for them whether Jody speaks for us at the table, whether what we're fighting for in contract 2020 is reflective of what the pilot group is interested in and ready to pursue at, at length. And so the no vote gives a glimmer to the company that perhaps what Jody's asking for is, is not reflective of the pilot group. You can either look backwards or you can look forwards. And I don't even have to look back over a 15 or 20 year career to, to think of what Southwest has offered and, and, and what was, was given. Given is a, is a hard term. In 2016, we were given an increase to our retirement of 0.7% with a match in the 401k. And TA1 failed, went down hard. And after leadership change and a, uh, at the union level and at the negotiating team level, we came back and with eight and within eight months secured an NEC of 15%. And that wasn't given to us. That was negotiated. And it was negotiated because of the demonstration of pilot resolve. Again, if, if you look back a year ago, Bob Jordan was named the new CEO. And I'm not ashamed to admit I was secretly optimistic that we would see better movement at the table. And we have not. Despite the efforts of mediation, despite the informational pickets we've conducted and all the rallies, despite the incredible huge change in the market. So as you look forward, your no vote on a strike authorization 
doesn't increase the pressure and doesn't improve our chances of bargaining a contract that rewards the most productive pilots in the industry quickly. A no vote allows the process that we're currently suffering under to continue to dawdle and linger and drag on. A no vote delivers low pay rates. A no vote delivers disability that's not paid. A no vote continues our 40-year-old maternity benefits. A no vote doesn't change how we handle training scheduling. A no vote just leaves us right where we've been all year. Does a yes vote improve the life of a management pilot? Yes. Does a yes vote improve the life of a project pilot? Yes. Does a yes vote improve the life of a standards check airman? Yes. Does a yes vote improve the life of a new hire first officer? Yes. Does a yes vote improve the life of someone who's retiring next month? Yes. A yes vote improves the life of our families. There are still people out there that haven't had all their questions answered. They haven't been to a rally. They haven't, you know, engaged with us. What's coming that will get those questions answered? What other engagement points do we have coming up? First off, we have several rallies that are up and coming and uh, ask that you just pay attention to the snapshot and other SWAPA communications to see where they are. Attend. Go ask your questions. Get the information that you need so that you can be informed and make the proper decision on how to vote on this. Do you have to be a SWAPA super fan to go to a rally with your spouse? No, it's a fun time. It's a good opportunity to socialize and see people that you haven't seen in years. And and I ask that you take that opportunity and go and get your answers. So if I bring my spouse or partner or significant other and we go to this and I'm the one person who throws out a kind of a barbed question, like, I'm, you know, I'm not a big SWAPA fan. They burned me in the past. And I ask an, an angry question. Those are accepted too. We had angry questions at several of the last rallies and, and those are welcomed as well because people need to be fully informed in this. So go to a rally, go to a roundup. We have roundups now in the Doubletree in, in Dallas. It's a good opportunity for you to get the information that you need. If you go into the airport and you see Leading Edge, go talk to those guys as well. Hey Murph, where can I learn more about the RLA? Um, all of the resources that we have available are on the union website under resources, RLA education, or direct links from the SPC committee page. Uh, Mike used the term call to action earlier. The, the education is, is available and it's been out there. I think the real next steps come from line pilots taking that extra effort to ensure that their friend group, their social networks, their new hire classmates, maybe friends from the military, this is a chance for each pilot to reach out and connect with two, three, five previous pilots and find out if they've heard of the vote, if they're intending to vote, this is their opportunity to extend the union's outreach to every last pilot on the list. Because a pilot who perhaps isn't informed or who has not been paying attention or has been distracted with their own personal life, the union is not the vehicle to get a hold of them. It's pilot to pilot outreach. And then, of course, let's not forget there is the SWAPA virtual meeting that is going to be all about the uh, strike authorization vote. It'll be on April 26th. We'll have you guys on there to answer any questions. You can ask questions anonymously. You can ask them, you know, you can use your name, angry questions, you you name it. I will ask them and you guys will be there to answer along with the execs and uh, hopefully the NC too. You guys spoke earlier in the podcast about take the walk and have the talk. Walk me through the logistics of having the talk. When does that happen? What are some considerations before you start having that conversation? I think first and foremost, we need to make sure regardless of the topic, we need to maintain safety at all times while we're at work. 
And so that can't be compromised. Second, approaching this in a manner that is toxic is counterproductive. We need to be empathetic. And, and here, everybody has problems. Everybody has objections and they're valid. And we need to listen to that and come from a place of understanding of where they're coming from. Perhaps it's a need for more education. Perhaps it's a need for more union education or understanding of how the RLA operates and the process that we're on. Regardless of what their objections may be or their hesitations with it all, there's plenty of opportunities through the course of a trip to have that discussion, whether it's on the hotel van or down at the restaurant for dinner. But I think that people need to listen to what the other person is, is saying and, and really hear what their hesitation is so that that can be addressed. But I think when you look across the reasons for an SAV, when those are brought to light, the majority of people are going to understand its necessity and what we're trying to accomplish. Mike was spot on with his answer in that, uh, I mean, it's, it's an old aviation rule, uh, keep religion and politics out of the flight deck. Well, I suppose we could add contract negotiations to that as well. If you are that pilot that has read the union education, if you are an enthusiastic yes, then any pilot with whom you interact that perhaps is not as convinced as you are or needs a little help, listening is going to do more than telling. It's, uh, it's singles and doubles that win baseball games. It is not in any way, shape, or form your job to get that pilot over the fence on that trip, on that pairing, or on that phone call. But the information you provide and the understanding and time you give them to articulate their concerns, that's going to open them up. That's going to create the opportunity for the pilot behind you to give that pilot the argument and the answers that is going to bring this membership to a near unanimous yes vote on the strike authorization vote. Will I move someone from a no to a yes by arguing harder for a yes vote? I think that you're going to do the exact opposite if that's the tact you take. Most people are going to be defensive and they're going to put their guard up and they're going to perceive it as a personal attack when you, when you come at somebody like that. Again, I think, as Murph said, we need to listen and understand what the objection is, really understand what it is, and see if there's more education or a different point of view that might help to change their opinion. One of the bigger things that we, we sometimes forget is that oftentimes the decision for the SAV and for the contract gets made at the kitchen table. What would you say to our pilots who haven't had that conversation at home yet? One of the reasons we established the SAV rallies was to ensure spouses could get their questions answered. We've also encouraged uh, Gene Peck, the chair of the SWAPA family committee, and I, I suppose you'd call them spouse influencers, to ensure that the innumerable um, social groups that exist sort of outside the union's umbrella, uh, much like the Facebook 2020 page is not controlled by the union, there are innumerable local uh, domicile-based or regional-based um, support groups. And that is a great resource and um, network for spouses to ask questions. And then those questions can be answered directly by the union. So each pilot should be talking to their spouse or partner and ensure their families are aware of, of the commitment it's going to take all of us pulling together to secure the contract that we've earned. Any parting thoughts from the both of you before we uh, wrap it up today? Southwest Airlines has always asked us to have a two-flight vision, and I hope every pilot understands that the opening of the strike authorization vote and the closing of the strike authorization vote are just another step along the path. And we should all be looking to this summer, and we should all be looking to the fall, and we should be prepared 
for the long walk, for the increasing rhetoric to follow a successful strike authorization vote to deliver messaging that gives Jody Revan and the rest of the negotiating team the support they need to help deliver a contract. A mind changed against its will is of the same mind still. We need to be good ambassadors of the message. We need to promote unity. We need to show the company that contract 2020 reflects the will of the pilot group, that we will fight for it, and we will come together to see it to its conclusion. Thank you to John and Mike for being on the show today. As always, we'd like to hear your feedback. If you have any podcast ideas that we haven't already covered or subject matter experts you'd like to hear from, please drop us a line at com at swapa.org. Finally, today's bonus number is 2065. That's the year the youngest pilot on our seniority list will retire. As we stated earlier, it's imperative that we have a strong turnout in this vote to secure the futures of not only those pilots, but those who have yet to come. Thank you, Southwest 1223, clear to land.